Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Happy Tuesday, fam. I hope your Monday was not very Monday, and you are killing it this week. Today's Palmetto State Armory deal of the day is the HKVP9 in Flat Dark Earth on sale with free shipping for only $499.99, which is $400 off the original price. This has been one of my best-selling firearms since I've become an affiliate with PSA, and you can feel like not a poor for poor man's prices, which is always exciting. That link is in the show description, and I posted it on Twitter last night as well, in case you missed it there. If Joe Biden had any hope that people would start supporting his run for president, Michael Sembalist, a top J.P. Morgan Chase strategist, is doing his best to dash those hopes. He said, President Biden will not run for re-election during a tumultuous year, that will see parts of the country suffer rolling blackouts, the release of an inhaled COVID vaccine, and a boat boycott over driverless cars. Sembalest heads the Market and Investment Strategy Unit in the Wall Street Bank's Asset Management Division and included this in his list of, quote, 10 surprises for 2024. Although I can't imagine that anyone would be surprised by that, considering His rating as president approaching his second term is the worst in the history of modern-day presidents. Uh, It's tops among the budding Nostradamus' prophecies was that 81-year-old Biden will drop out of the race sometime between Super Tuesday and the November election, citing health concerns. Super Tuesday, if you don't know, which I can't imagine you're listening to my show and you don't, but... It is the March 5th presidential primaries and caucuses that will be held in more than a dozen states, including California, Texas, Massachusetts, Vermont, and North Carolina. The winner of the Super Tuesday contests is considered the heavy favorite to eventually capture the party's nomination for president. Sembalest issued his predictions in newsletter, in a newsletter, as a tribute to a former J.P. Morgan market strategist, Byron Wien, who had made 10 prognostications every year for nearly four decades before his death last year at age 90. Also on Symbolist's list was that Americans will reject self-driving vehicles following several accidents that have roiled San Francisco and a warning that blackouts will strike New York, Texas, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Tennessee due to a natural gas shortage. He predicted that a new inhaled COVID vaccine, which is currently under development, will be available this year and sharply reduce transmission of the virus, that the U.S. dollar would remain stable, and that the Russian invasion of Ukraine would drag on this year without a ceasefire. He also thinks that stocks of U.S. regional banks will do well, despite the instability in the lending sector in the past year. His prediction that Biden would bow out was partly based on the president's low approval rating. 
despite, quote, around 10% job creation since his inauguration, the strategist noted that Biden's high job creation figures are the byproduct of his inauguration coinciding with the rollout of COVID vaccines and reopening the U.S. economy. Vice President Kamala Harris is unpopular with the public, which I can't imagine when you cackle all the time and have nothing remotely intelligent to say why that happened, but uh, more than half, 55.5% disapprove of her job performance. Rep. Dean Phillips from Minnesota and self-help author Marianne Williamson are the only Democrats who have declared their candidacies. The two long-shot candidates will debate one another in New Hampshire on Monday. This article was released on Monday, so I don't know if that was yesterday that they debated or if it's next Monday because it doesn't actually write a date. I know it's really hard to believe that they would leave that part out, right? Uh, Biden, of course, is not going to participate in the debate. Another Democrat, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., intends to run as an independent candidate. Despite concerns over Biden's age and mental acuity, the incumbent remains the overwhelming favorite to recapture his party's nomination, with polls showing three and four Dems favoring him over Williamson and Phillips. Former President Donald Trump remains the overwhelming frontrunner in a race against GOP hopefuls Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and biotech mogul Vivek Ramaswamy. If the presidential election were held today, Biden would lose to Trump, according to the most recent public opinion surveys. This prediction and Biden's abysmal poll numbers could explain why I'm seeing so much more of Michelle Obama hit my headlines. Michelle Obama says fears about the 2024 White House race keep her up at night. I am terrified about what could possibly happen, she said of this year's presidential election in an interview on Jay Shetty's On Purpose podcast. Because our leaders matter, who we select, who speaks for us, who holds that bully pulpit. It affects us in ways that sometimes I think people take for granted, the former first lady said when asked to name some of her biggest fears keeping her awake. The fact that people think that government does, it really even do anything. And I'm like, oh my God, government does everything for us. And we cannot take this democracy for granted. And sometimes I worry that we do, said Michelle. I don't think the level of disdain that I have for this woman can be properly conveyed, and I want to be clear about that up front. I am biased, and I have nothing but disrespect for this woman and her husband and what they did to discourse and societal decline in this country in a mere eight years. We are not a democracy. The only thing the government does for me is steal my money and spend it in ways that I don't agree with. Poison. She's nothing but pure poison. For this country. Those are things that keep me up at night, she said, while also listing wars in too many regions. Uh, that's your guy's fault. (laughs) The future of artificial intelligence, education, and whether the public is too stuck to their phones and voter engagement are among her chief concerns. 
my chief concerns, like if you were to ask me, like, what are you afraid of, Heather? I'd be like, burning to death, not having enough food for my kids, not having a a good vehicle. Like there are so many concerns that I have that, uh, what did, what did she say? Uh, uh, one of her chief concerns is that voter engagement is one of her chief concerns. Holy cow. Oh, man. I have, I have a lot more things that I'm concerned about, and that's not one of them. During the wide-ranging conversation, Shetty asked the former first lady about the phrase she famously uttered at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, when they go low, we go high, and how it's evolved. If anything, what does still offend you? The life coach and podcaster asked. Her response? Injustice, ego, greed. Racism, ignorance, it's so offensive. Uh, so you offend yourself then. You find yourself offensive based off of that response. Well, admission is the first step to forgiveness. Maybe you'll get there someday. She said, I've always been that kid. I don't like unfairness. I don't like bullies, but I have to think about how I deliver messages still, even in my pain and my anger and my disappointment. She said, pain? What pain? You have a net worth of $160 million. You earn $35 million annually through book royalties, Netflix, Spotify deals, speaking seminars, and business investments. You're considered the richest first lady to ever grace the White House, and you're doubling your net worth every three years, and you're expected to become a billionaire. I'm sure you're in so much pain in comparison to the people that you're trying to pretend you care about or relate to. Her comments come amid reported concerns from former President Obama about the threat that President Trump poses should he return to the White House. Trump currently appears set to cruise to the 2024 GOP White House nomination without mentioning him by name because he's like fucking Voldemort to her. Michelle appeared to condemn Trump. Quote, the tone and tenor of the message matters. We can't just say the first thing that comes to our mind. That's not authenticity to me. That's childish. And we see childish childish leadership right before us. What that looks like and how that feels where somebody is just base and vulgar and cynical in a leadership position, she told Shetty. So authenticity is canned and rehearsed responses that are carefully crafted to elicit a specific response from your audience? Is that authentic? She said it doesn't trickle down well. That just begets more of that, Obama said. I think we're obligated to model for those of us that have a platform because it resonates, she added. And I want to resonate good. I want to resonate reason and compassion and empathy. I'm sorry to say, Michelle, you're a failure. You don't resonate good. You resonate pandering, inauthentic, divisive, pretentious, and elitist. Speaking of men who frustrate me, Mayorkas is at risk of being impeached as House Republicans are seeking to swiftly remove the Homeland Security Secretary, but I can't imagine why. He must have not have read the title Homeland Security. 
must have slipped right past him like the hundreds of thousands of people he's let slip across our border. The controversial move to make Mayorkas the first cabinet secretary impeached in nearly 150 years amounts to a shift for the House GOP, which had set its sights on potentially impeaching President Joe Biden in early 2024. But with the Biden probe moving methodically, and a number of Republicans still skeptical about impeaching the president, senior Republicans now believe targeting Mayorkas will be an easier lift as the border crisis becomes a defining campaign issue. Because that's what it's about, don't you know? Campaign issues. They don't want to actually solve this situation on the border on either side of the aisle. They need it as an easy talking point because, quote, we're going to continue to steal your money at an unprecedented rate, whether you can put food on your table or not. Please make sure you look over here while we distract you so that we can do that. From the far right and the Freedom Caucus to those more moderate, we have all been a part of this. Anthony Desposito, Desposito, a freshman congressman from New York that Biden carried in 2020 said, we've all asked the tough questions and I think we're at a point and I believe the American people agree with us that Mayorkas needs to be impeached and we need to find quality leadership to lead Homeland Security. The emerging plan, according to multiple GOP lawmakers and aides, is to run the Mayorkas impeachment effort entirely through the House Homeland Security Committee as opposed to the House Judiciary, where impeachment articles typically originate, though it's not constitutionally required. The reason for that strategy, which sources have said has said has been greenlit by House Speaker Mike Johnson is largely related to internal politics. Senior Republicans are confident they will have the votes to advance impeachment articles through the Homeland Security Committee, whereas there are still key Republican holdouts on the Judiciary Panel. Housing the effort in the Homeland Security Committee was also seen as a way to placate firebrand GOP rep Marjorie Taylor Greene, who serves on the panel and has been threatening to force another snap floor vote on Mayorkas impeachment resolution. It's more critical right now than anything, and I think the American people are very, very attuned to that, said Homeland Security Committee Chair Mark Green. So I do think it will be a political issue in November, Green said. He's been in nearly daily communication with the Speaker and plans to move on impeachment fairly quickly. The Tennessee Republican does not anticipate there will be many hearings, since he's already held numerous ones during his investigation into the southern border. The first impeachment hearing, which will take place on Wednesday, is expected to largely be a summary of his probe and will feature witnesses. The chairman has accused Mayorkas of failing to enforce the nation's existing immigration laws and argued it's a violation of his oath to uphold the Constitution, amounting to an impeachable offense. He declined to reveal what charges he is eyeing for impeachment articles, but expressed confidence they'll have the votes to succeed. But Democrats and even constitutional experts say policy disputes hardly rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. 
And while many Democrats acknowledge the current immigration system is broken and the border has been overwhelmed, in part because global migration overall has increased, they also strongly refute the notion that the border is open or that Mayorkas has violated any laws. Ostriches, the lot of them, they exist with their heads in a hole in the ground. There is no way that anyone who sees the footage of the massive numbers of people entering our country illegally can say that they, quote, strongly refute the notion that the border is open. Well, what notion do you have? That it's closed? Man, I can feel my blood pressure rising as I ride this show tonight. According to the Department of Homeland Security, 1.4 million individuals who were encountered at the border were removed in fiscal year 2022, which is more than in any previous year. The agency has also stopped more fentanyl and arrested more individuals for fentanyl-related crimes in the last two years than in the previous five years combined. I can't wait to see 2023's numbers, but please, by all means, refute away that the border is wide open. The impeachment battle comes as immigration is expected to dominate the congressional session. While the GOP is taking steps to impeach Mayorkas, senators are engaged in intense talks over new border policies to unlock aid to Ukraine and Israel. And in the House, a growing number of Republicans are willing to try to sink a must-pass bill to keep the government open unless their restrictive immigration measures are included in it. I want to say if our president and the Democrats or whoever doesn't love our country and the citizens enough respect our laws enough to shut down our border when we need to use our leverage, which is cutting off their funding in order to force them to shut the border, said Illinois Rep. Mary Miller, a member of the House Freedom Caucus. While GOP leadership hasn't gone as far as calling to shut the government down over the border, they are making the issue a top priority in 2024. And when asked whether he thinks they should use the upcoming government funding deadline as leverage for their border demands, Scalise told CNN, every tool and option for fixing our broken and open southern border needs to be on the table. The irony of them asking, do you think that you would actually use that as leverage? Every single time a spending bill has come up, Democrats have used it to weasel in some of the most egregious spending that I've ever read in my life. So this is a bit pot calling the kettle black here. And uh, apropos timing, considering the Biden administration is beginning to depend more and more on Mexico to help stem the record high flow of illegal immigrants entering the U.S., and Obrador is doing such a great job with that, too. Government officials from both nations have said that Mexico also has its own list of desired actions for the United States, including for it to grant amnesty to at least 10 million Hispanic illegal immigrants. Under the Biden administration, records for illegal crossings have been reportedly broken since the beginning of his term. The record for the most illegal immigrant crossing seen at the southern border of all time, for instance, was set yet again just last month. Previous attempts by the Biden administration to lessen 
illegal immigration have led to only temporarily decreased crossings. And Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Mexico last month to ask Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador to provide assistance, according to NBC. Lopez Obrador called on Friday for the U.S. to approve an initiative that would send $20 billion to Latin America and the Caribbean countries, in addition to stopping any sanctions against Venezuela, ending the U.S. blockade of Cuba, and giving at least 10 million Hispanic illegal immigrants the ability to stay in the country and work legally. A record high of 300,000 illegal immigrants were processed by customs in December. A senior Biden administration official told NBC in response to Lopez Obrador's request that the Mexican president has a very ambitious agenda. And for some of these things, we would need Congress to act. We share the vision that we need to lift up the region. Negotiators with the U.S. want Mexico to increase enforcement along its southern border with Guatemala and to deport more illegal immigrants apprehended within Mexico. Both nations are set to continue meeting in Washington late this month. Mexican and American officials alike have reportedly said that Mexico holds significant leverage in the negotiations. How? We're the fucking United States. There, there is no, oh my God. Lopez Obrador's administration also hopes that Joe Biden wins re-election in November, according to the outlet. If I were president, my response would be, yeah, nah, fam. We're cutting off all financial resources to your country and all Western Union transfers effective immediately. Imagine being such a weak fucking president that you'd allow the Mexican president to extort you. How weak, you ask? Well, you'll see on March 7th when Joe Biden gives his annual State of the Union address. We'll be streaming that one live, by the way. Grab your popcorn, libations for Thirsty Thursday drinking games. In a letter sent to the White House on Saturday, House Speaker Mike Johnson extended the formal invitation for Biden to speak to a joint session of Congress. Johnson said he was inviting Biden, quote, in this moment of great challenge for our country. On Twitter, or X, or whatever you want to call it, Biden accepted. <laughs> uh, looking forward to it, Mr. Speaker, the president said. This will be the first State of the Union address for Johnson as Speaker, who traditionally sits behind the president and to his left during the address to Congress. This year's speech will offer an opportunity for Biden to detail his broader vision and policy priorities as he campaigns for re-election in November. And I hadn't thought about how much better this will be without having to look at old vodka jaws trying to keep her teeth in and clapping like a petulant seal. The annual address from the president to Congress is usually scheduled for late January or February. Biden's March 7th address would be the latest that a president has delivered the State of the Union since 1934, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt revived the practice of giving the annual speech in person. Before this year, the latest that a State of the Union address had been given 
was in 2022, when Biden delivered it on March 1st of that year. In last year's State of the Union, Biden repeatedly declared that he would, quote, finish the job on critical parts of his agenda that remained incomplete, such as capping insulin costs for all Americans, taking more aggressive actions on climate change, banning so-called assault-style weapons, (laughs) him pushing for higher taxes on corporations and the rich. It was also his first State of the Union in front of a divided Congress, and Some House Republicans interrupted and jeered at Biden, particularly when he spoke about efforts from some GOP lawmakers to cut Medicare and Social Security. On another urgent diplomatic mission to the Middle East, because is there any other kind of mission for this administration? Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Arab partners to press for their help and tamping down resurgent fears that Israel's three-month war against Hamas and Gaza would spread. In discussions with Qatar's emir and Jordan's king, man, if you were talking to Qatar, you should have just sent Bob Menendez. He could have had that taken care of real easily. Blinken spoke of the need for Israel to adjust its military operations to reduce civilian casualties and significantly boost the amount of humanitarian aid reaching Gaza while stressing the importance of preparing detailed plans for the post-conflict future of the Palestinian territory, which has been decimated by Israeli bombardments. So much for those Abraham Peace Accords, huh? The mission, that will also take him to the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the West Bank and Egypt, before he returns to Washington, is Blinken's fourth to the region since the war began. How's it going? How's it going, Blinken? Do you feel like you've been successful with all of those trips? After a day of talks with the Turkish and Greek leaders in Istanbul and Crete, Blinken met with Jordan's King Abdullah II and Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi in Amman before traveling to Doha for talks with Qatari Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al Thani. Thani, Thani and Foreign Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al-Tani to seek buy-in. Holy, I can't believe I just made it through all of that without fucking it up. To seek buy-in for U.S. efforts to tamp down resurgent fears that the war could engulf the region, ramp up aid to Gaza, and prepare for an eventual end of hostilities. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering, Blinken told reporters during a joint news conference with Sheikh Mohammed. So from day one, among other priorities, we've been intensely focused on working to prevent the conflict from spreading. Blinken said it has been a major focus of his discussion with all of the leaders he has met with in recent days. Quote, we share a commitment to ensure that the conflict does not expand. He said they also have discussed what each country can do once the conflict is over to provide the assurances and the incentives required to build a more secure and more stable and more peaceful future for the region. Poor Zelensky's probably putting his high heels back on, hoping that he can stand tall enough to catch the attention of Blinken at this point. Jordan and other Arab states have been highly critical of Israel's actions and have issued 
public support for long-term planning, arguing that the fighting must end before such discussions can begin. They've been demanding a ceasefire since mid-October, and civilian casualties began to skyrocket. After his talks with Blinken, Sheikh Mohammed called for an immediate ceasefire, saying the constant images of death and destruction in Gaza are desensitizing people to the horrors of what is happening. This is a big test for our humanity, he said. We are looking for a sustainable future. However, the focus is now on stopping the fighting. King Abdullah warned of the catastrophic repercussions of the war in Gaza while calling on the U.S. to press for an immediate ceasefire. A statement from the royal court said Israel has refused to agree to a ceasefire and the United States has instead called for a specified temporary humanitarian pause to allow aid to get in and people to get to safety. In Greece on Saturday, Blinken said his trip would be dominated by not easily navigated conversations with allies and partners about what they're willing to do to build durable peace and security. Do you feel good? Do you feel like we have the right man for the job of navigating and negotiating this situation? There are different perspectives, different needs, different requirements, but it is vital that we engage in this diplomacy now, both for the sake of Gaza itself and more broadly, the sake of future for Israelis and Palestinians for the region as a whole, he said. His priorities are protecting civilians. Far too many Palestinians have been killed getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza, ensuring Hamas cannot strike again, and developing a framework for Palestinian-led governance in the territory. Palestinian state with security assurances or Israel. Hours before Blinken's meetings on Saturday, Lebanon's Iran-backed Hezbollah militia fired dozens of rockets at northern Israel and said the barrage was an initial response to the targeted killing, presumably by Israel, of a top leader from the allied Hamas group in Lebanon's capital last week. Israel responded in what became one of the heaviest days of cross-border fighting in recent weeks. Meanwhile, stepped-up attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea by Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels have disrupted international trade and led to increased efforts by the United States and its allies to patrol the vital commercial waterway, and respond to threats. The coalition of countries issued what amounted to a final warning to the Houthis on Wednesday to cease their attacks on vessels or face potential targeted military action. Since December 19th, the militants have carried out at least two dozen attacks in response to the Israel-Hamas war. Okay, last story of the day. We're going to end the show on a funny note. Apparently, the Golden Globes were last night. I had no clue. Comedian Jim Gaffigan cracked an eyebrow-raising joke while presenting the first ever stand-up comedy award at the 2024 Golden Globes. The actor and comedian made a daring dig when he dropped a line about pedophiles while introducing the best performance in a stand-up comedy on television category during this Sunday telecast. He said, this is so exciting for me. The Golden Globes, I mean, I can't even believe I'm in the entertainment industry. I can't, you know, it's so unlikely. 
I'm from a small town in Indiana. I'm not a pedophile. (laughs) You know, I just, I don't know if that's a new category here, but (laughs) for 80 years, good looking people just threw a party, right? And then you guys finally decided to invite the talented people. Stand-up comedy is a brutal business, and thanks to Netflix, people get overpaid for it. He then revealed the nominees for Best Performance in Stand-Up Comedy, and the nominees were Trevor Noah, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes, and Ricky Gervais, who won for his special Ricky Gervais Armageddon, and thank goodness, too. Wanda Sykes has had good moments, but... Gervais is leaps and bounds better than any of those other nominees. I'm just disappointed that Cat Williams wasn't asked to announce the nominees so he could absolutely roast them in the process. Gaffigan's pedophile joke while off-color seemed to go over better with the Globe's audience than another awkward comedic moment that took place earlier in the ceremony. Host Joe Coy who landed the awards show a couple weeks ago, struggled through his opening monologue as many of his jokes failed to land with the audience. After a Barbie joke about the main character's transformation to a normal woman with cellulite and flat feet, Koi only got scattered laughter in the theater. In response, he quipped, some I wrote, some other people wrote, referring to his jokes. This man is going to single-handedly start the writer's strike again. He then added, yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. You're kidding me, right? Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're laughing at. That is your Tuesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I apologize that it went long again got a little fired up. You guys take care. Have a wonderful night and I will see you tomorrow. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.